But we tonight we are in Mark chapter eight. We've been talking about this uh, turning point for the last few weeks. Jesus had here's the Sea of Galilee. Uh, he's left the area of north the northwest corner here, gone up into Tyre, Phoenicia, Sidon, and has come back and spent some time down here in the Decapolis. Uh, that's where he fed the four thousand. And has gone now back across the Sea of Galilee to this northwest side. Uh, he's going to land basically in a port. It's, a, it's an unknown port. Which we, it's identified here in the text. Uh, we haven't found it uh, as far as locating the name. It's a pretty clear where it's at. It's, it's right here. It's Tiberias. Here's Tiberias. Here's, they're setting right across the sea right here. There's Tiberias. It's right down on this side. Uh, towards this northwest side it's, it's it's probably it's probably a port for the the side of tiberius right here he's going to land there and he's going to be met by the pharisees he's coming but he's left because of the opposition from the pharisees and the people and gone up into gentile territory comes out of gentile territory the decapolis and comes back and soon as he lands he's going to be confronted by the pharisees and that's where we're going to look at these verses here and this is clearly a confrontation by the pharisees and jesus it's i, I want to point build it out for you tonight is going to be be done with them the best comparison and you'll see it i think is is in psalms where god expresses his frustration if if we can use that word with the exodus generation he says because they wouldn't they would not respond they will never enter my rest i mean it's like this case is closed They'll never go, and that's what ha- that is what happens right here. This is is a, a a departure. He is going to leave. He's going to leave this area, and he's done. And he he's going to sigh. And we're, the, again, we'll talk about that word uh, with in a sense of frustration. In fact, there's even an oath written in in the English. You can see it here, uh, but it, it's concealed. I've got two commentators that write. I'll read what they write instead of me trying to explain it. Uh, it just says there'll be no sign given to this generation, but that that's how it's translated. But it's a little stronger th- in the fact that there, you know, it's like there's not a chance in the world I would ever do something like that. I mean, I'm not going to respond to you. And he turns and goes away. Now in Mark chapter, uh, oh, chapter what, 13, I, I, you know, I, I get it mixed up with uh, Matthew 24. Um, at the end right there yeah uh yeah mark 13 he's going to in mark 13 he's going to leave the temple and i think matthew makes a bigger deal about it he leaves the temple for the last time he says there's not going to be one stone left upon another so when he leaves here he leaves galilee leaves the jewish territory he's going to also leave the temple mount for the final time in mark 13 which is jesus i mean just like we see it in Zechariah, when the sheep reject the shepherd, and, and, and we're studying that like on Tuesday nights, uh, the same thing, then I will no longer be your shepherd. I, he's rejecting the people. It's like, then you're on your own. Uh, to those are going to be devoured, be devoured. Those are going to be destroyed, be destroyed. I'm, I'm done. So as they reject him here, and that's what they're doing, he's rejecting him right back. And this is, this is Zechariah chapter 11 occurring in real time it's like the the sheep the leaders are rejecting him and it's like okay and and i'm not i'm done with you 
and he's going to abandon them to their fate. And he says in Zechariah, let those that are going to die, die. Let those are going to be destroyed, be destroyed. And let the rest of them eat each other's flesh. And that's what's going to happen. This is 30 A.D., and we're headed towards 70 A.D., and in 70 A.D., that is all going to be fulfilled. So again, this is, is a, a short set of verses, but at the same time, it's, it's pretty intense, especially when you see all the events leading up to it and where this is going, because this, this chapter 8 is the pivotal verse or pivotal chapter in, this, in the book of Mark. Because here he's done with the Galilean ministry. He's gone up into the Decapolis in the Gentile territory. But as you know, he's going to go up to Caesarea Philippi. And that's where he's going to be at the base of the mountain, Mount Hermon. Uh, he's going to be apparently at the gates of Hades, the, where the, the shrines were. And he's in Gentile territory. And that's where he's going to ask the disciples in this, in this book and in, in Matthew, uh, who do men say that I am? And, and they're going to give him the right answer. And he's going to then be transfigured, and he's going to then tell his disciples, the Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem and be betrayed and be crucified. And that's where Peter's going to step up and say, oh no, no, we're not going to let that happen. And, and he gets rebuked by Jesus. I mean, in one sense, he, he identifies Jesus correctly, but then completely misidentifies Jesus' mission. And Jesus then is now, once he leaves Caesarea Philippi, he's going straight into Jerusalem, and the rest of the book is basically about a month long. I mean, we're in chapter 8, and it's been three years in chapter 8. You think I'm slow, look at Mark. I mean, it's like, and it's, but although he did it in seven chapters, I, you know, but um, the rest of this is going to be his journey to Jerusalem, and basically the final month, and the events that take place, including uh, his eschatological teaching, and then, of course, the trials and the end. But here, this is, again, a very pivotal verse. I'll read it in the NIV here. In fact, if you don't mind, I, I would like to read, starting in chapter 8, and just read to the end of the chapter to kind of, so you can kind of see what's going to be taking place right here uh, because chapter 8 and 9 are going to kind of pivot around uh, being up here in Caesarea Philippi. So chapter uh, 8 uh, beginning in verse, let's begin in verse 11. No, no, excuse me. Uh, verse 9. Uh, because he just finished feeding the 4,000 in Decapolis. About 4,000 men were present, eating the food. And having sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Delmunatha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and says, why does this generation, see that's kind of a key phrase right there, generation, reminds you of the Exodus generation, Noah's generation, and now this generation. Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, and there's that that capturing the ideal of an oath, a vow. I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. And again, that's the English translation, which is real tame very tempered no sign will be given to it it's a lot more expressive oath performing in 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 the in the in the hebrew and the greek then he left them got back into the boat and crossed to the other side again very dramatically he comes across confronts them and says no way gets back in the boat and leaves them and that it's like a very simple event but it's like pivotal i mean here's the 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 religious leaders and he's like no we're not going to do this now that we'll talk about this next part more next week it will probably introduce a little bit tonight now they're going across the sea of galilee now watch how the disciples are 
uh, again, we were sympathetic with the disciples. Uh, they're going to become the, the great church leaders. They're going to become great men on their own, which gives us all hope. But they're, they're, in a sense, real dense during this whole thing. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. And that'd be like a small, like a sandwich. They got one little sandwich, basically, with the, in the boat. And so they're like talking about this. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of, of Herod. And that'd be Herod Antipas. He's the, the leader of this area and uh, Perea on the east side of Jordan. Um, so he says this. Be careful, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with, with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. They're trying to, what is he talking about? Now remember, when he says, when he goes over to Caesarea Philippi, he's going to say, the Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be betrayed, handed over, and, and they do, do not even understand it. And he even says on the third day he'll be raised again. And, and they, they do not understand it. In fact, when it starts to happen, they don't understand it. So for them to hear him say, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and, of, and that of Herod, they're, and they're worried. They've been arguing, you only brought one sandwich? Only one? Where's... And he goes, you guys, you need to be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. It's like, he knows we didn't have any bread. He, know, he knows these things. It's like, who, who was supposed to get the bread? And they're arguing about the bread, and he's giving them a, a warning about what they've just seen here on the shore of the Sea of Galilee where the Pharisees say, we'd like to see a sign from heaven. And he laughs at him and basically, and, and say he laughs at him, but you know, basically rejects him. He says, you guys need to be careful of the same thing you're so close to making the same mistake yeah i knew we should have brought more bread i thought you had it it's like they're not even understanding the warning he says you got to be careful because you're gonna and it's interesting here because they are so close to being in the same situation as the pharisees he says be careful because you are just ready to step or accept that yeast into your loaf of bread and you're going to make the same mistake of where they're of where, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? He asked them eight questions here. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? He's quoting Isaiah. And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how you many basketfuls and pieces you picked up? Well, 12, they say. And when I broke the 7,000 for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? And so they can answer the, the questions, five baskets full, seven baskets full. But do you still not understand what I mean about the yeast of the Pharisees? And they're like, apparently, no, they don't. So it's just interesting, all those questions that are lined up right there. So they are, again, in the middle of Mark, and this is being written by Mark, recording Peter's writing. So Peter, of course, makes it out of this situation and, and rises to some great height spiritually. And he's, he's dead when this is being written by Mark, according to church history. Um, but at that point right there, you can see how dense even Peter and the disciples were that, that this is, these things are escaping him. Okay, they came to Bethsaida, that's on just on the, now on the northeast coast of sea of galilee went across and some people brought a blind man and begged jesus to touch him he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village when he had spit on the man's eyes and this is the second time this chapter he's using spit and put his hands on him jesus asked 
do you see anything he looked up and says i see people they look like trees walking around once more jesus put his hands on the man's eyes then his eyes were opened his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly jesus sent him home saying don't go into the village jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around caesarea philippi so now they went across the Sea of Galilee, stopped at Bethsaida, and they just kept right on going outside of Israel territory up into Syria. They're at the base of Mount Hermon at where the water comes out of the base called Gates of Hades. Uh, and, and they're in that area, Caesarea Philippi. And there's many things taking place, but when he gets there, on the way he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others uh, you're one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. What do you say I am? Now, this is one of the highlights of the disciples' success. I mean, that they've been learning, that they've, they've captured this. Peter answered, you are the Christ. Uh, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. In other words, when he says Christ, that means Messiah, the anointed one. Messiah in the Hebrew means the anointed one. Christ from Christos in the Greek means the anointed one. He is the anointed one of Psalms that's going to be anointed the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And that's, here's what takes place next. Verse 31, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. That's a huge verse because he began to teach them many things about the Son of Man that, that he must suffer. In other words, he's been showing, teaching, revealing who he was, trying to get the disciples to understand. But now that they've come to this point, they, they understand who he is. Now you have to understand what I'm going to do. I am going to have to suffer. Of course, that's not even, I mean, we understand that. When we talk about Jesus, the Messiah, Easter story, I mean, we, could, we just yawn our way right through it. It just makes sense. that the, Jesus, the Messiah, oh, he's going to have to die on the cross and be resurrected. Yay. But for them... This is, they don't even know how to, they don't even know where to place this information. Because if he is the Messiah, he just admitted he's the Messiah. He accepted G Peter's claim that he's the Christ. Okay, well, then, I mean, they're, they're, they got to be thinking militant. They've got to be thinking he's going to take over. He's going to sit on the throne of his father, David. His, and again, we have sympathy for him because his mother, Mary, was told by the angel that your child will sit on the throne of his father, David. It's like, well, and, and it's like, that's, the, that's not like a, a rumor. That's not like a dream. That's an angel that visited her that told her he will sit on the throne of your, his father, David. It's like, well, you kind of expect that to take place. So there's all these indications that Jesus is heading towards the throne. In fact, the disciples don't switch directions all the way to Jerusalem. They're still expecting him to take the throne. So understand, when I read this, how strange and they don't even know how to they're not going to hear this at all like we hear it after they said you are the christ or peter did he warned them not to tell anyone about him he then began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things there's something you don't understand i'm not going to become king i'm going to have to suffer first and be rejected by the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Now remember it talks about the three leaders in Zechariah, the three leaders that were rejected, that, the, the, that Zechariah fired the, the, the three shepherds or the three leaders. Here's right here. It, it could be, for example, we don't know what those three would be. 
you know, we got different guesses, but it could be uh, right here. They could be the elders. That'd be the political leaders in, 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 the, in the synagogues and the political leaders. The chief priests, that'd be in the temple. And the teachers of the law, that'd be the scribes, which you could throw the Pharisees in that group. And that he, they're going to they're reject him. That he would be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now that's got to be the, the craziest verse in the New Testament, if not the Bible. The Christ explains his mission. Peter takes him aside and corrects him. This is not going to happen to you. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan. He says, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And once again, there's contrast or irony in that because right there in verse 29, Peter answers correctly, you are the Christ. Then you count down one, two, three, four, five verses. Jesus says to Peter, the one who just says he's the Christ, get behind me, Satan. It's like, what a pivot. I mean, Peter's one time proclaiming Christ, the next time trying to thwart the ministry of the cross. And is doing it as saint. Now, again, here Jesus called that vocabulary, that word, that plan, that adjusting of God's will, Jesus is going to suffer and die on the cross, Let's tweak that a little bit. We can maybe do this without that having to happen. Get behind me, Saint. We're not going to we're not going to throw the whole church thing out. We're just going to tweak it a little bit. We're not going to reject the scriptures. We're just going to adjust them a little bit. Remember when Saint was tempting Jesus? I mean, was he like, "Don't quote that Bible to me. Don't quote that Bible to me." Now, who was quoting the Bible during the temptations? satan was quoting the scriptures so it's not like some kind of magical charm i quote the scriptures and satan runs away it's like satan quotes it right back he just twists it a little bit and that's what's happening right here he he says get behind me satan you do not have in mind the things of god but the things of men then he called and again now you wonder i wonder how many plans have i got that i'm following god and i've got bible verses and when it comes judgment day you had in mind the things of men not the plan of god it's like well how do you tell the difference with everybody satan's quoting scripture gabriel's quoting scripture jesus quoting scripture i'm teaching scripture uh, which how do we follow well it's is it god's plan or man's plan well I, now i don't know now and so now you got to check your heart again and that's and like i said before you know when i was 20 25 30 I, that was not a problem i was sure now that i'm older i'm like i i don't know this is not as clear as it once was i mean it is it's just maybe you learn more or you get start second guessing nonetheless verse 34 then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and says if anyone would come after me he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me now this again very pertinent uh, for the disciples but especially for those in rome that would be reading this letter this book written by mark because they are taking up their cross and going to martyrdom while while this is being written forever wants to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it what good is it for a man to gain the whole world what a huge verse what good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul now just think of all people i mean even our own selves individually but certainly people you can see 
in, in, in pop culture and politics in the world where they're gaining the world, but they're, they're not even concerned about their eternal soul. And they have this little like flash of light in history where they are, everybody knows their name. But I understand once they cross over into eternity, it's, it's over, except for what the dusty history books record, and that fades away. Um, so sometimes, you know, that's a nice verse uh, to judge yourself, but also to help keep a perspective. It's like, you know, I could have been somebody. I could have, I could have left a mark. I could have left. It's like, right, and gained the whole world and forfeited your soul. It's like, where are they at today? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with, all his, with, all, with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth. Now here's a, we got to talk, we're like several weeks away from this. But, and he said to them, I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Well, now you understand why some people, uh, like the, the, who they hear this in the early church, that Jesus is coming back soon because some of these, some of you are not going to die until you see the kingdom of God come in power. It's like, well, we're talking weeks, we're talking months, at least before we die. Uh, but then now it's twenty twenty three, and it's kind of like. I think they're all dead, and now it's like, well, the kingdom must have came in power already sometime in the first century, maybe 70 A.D. when Jerusalem fell. Now you're, now you're a preterist because they had to see it come before the last apostle died, which would be John. So it all has to have been, oh, well, so the king, we're already in the kingdom age. I mean, I'm not saying that's the way I'm going to interpret it, but you can see how that you've got to jump over that hurdle or at least explain something that doesn't make you sound like you're just dodging the question now some people answer the question with this very you're gonna you're gonna see the kingdom come of god come with power some say they saw that in this very next verse the transfiguration after six days so it was six days later no one died in six days uh, he took peter james and john with him and led them up a high mountain and that would be mount hermon right there at caesarea philippi now, not everybody agrees it's mount hermon some people think it's somewhere in galilee but in the context here, I have no trouble thinking it's Mount Hermon. They go up Mount Hermon, especially when you get into Canaanite mythology and the gods being on the mountains. This would be one of the mountains that would be a Canaanite site that would be a nice place for Yahweh to make an appearance. And again, we could tie that into a lot of other verses. We get into Canaanite and Ugaritic texts and things, especially when you see what's going to take place. He led them up a high mountain, I think Mount Hermon, where they, where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. Again, kingdom coming in power. I'm not saying that's my answer. I'm just saying just like you got preterism, you can say this was the kingdom coming. They're going to see it. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before him. Now here's another. What, what's this? Elijah and Moses who are talking with Jesus. Now there's like, 13 questions just pop out of your head right there it's like i thought they were dead what are they doing back why are they talking to jesus is jesus counseling with them are they giving advice are they giving encouragement and how do peter and james and john recognize them well 
Moses has got the long beard, you know. Elijah's got the camel skin, you know. It's like these guys have been dead for, you know, 2,000 years or 1,400 or 700 years. Uh, and, and it's like Moses didn't always, he would, didn't always have a white beard. Uh, that's, and that, we don't even know he had a white beard. That was just in the movie, Ben-Hur, or not Ben-Hur, but the Ten Commandments. It's like, so, I mean, there's a, how do they know? But anyway, and there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with them. Peter, now here, this is, you, we'll talk about what is he talking about. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us build, put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Verse 6, Mark kind of helps explain this. And again, this would be Peter's story and Mark recording Peter's story. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. So in other words, what he says there is like, it made no sense. I know. I just said whatever came into my mind. Let's, let's build three temples for you guys. Uh, I don't know what to do. <laughs> and that, no, that's Mark saying. Then a cloud appeared and it en- enveloped them and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they were, when they looked around, they were no longer saw. They no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they are coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now, again, remember when he dies on the cross, they do not know what to think. They do not know where to place that information. But here he's telling them. Do not tell anyone about this transfiguring. Now, Peter does tell everybody or records it in 1 Peter. He talks about the trans. He says, we saw, and he says, the glory come. He says, we saw it. But he says, we had, now again, this is off subject. He says, I was there. I saw the glory of God. I saw this. But you have a better word of prophecy in the scriptures. He says, I can tell you, I was there on that holy mountain. I was there and I saw this. But in my last writing, what I'm going to tell you to do, don't worry about the stories. You have the word of prophecy written clearly on what's taking place. So he actually takes an example of, you know, everybody wanted to tell us that story about the transfiguration when you saw Moses and Elijah. Well, you know, that packed the auditorium. But Peter says, you have a better word than me telling stories. You have the actual word of God that you can pay attention to. It'll be a light shining in a dark place. That's, now, uh, and he gave them a mountain, Jesus, um, in verse 9, and as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone that they, what, what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what, listen, discussing what, quote, rising from the dead meant. And you can understand why. If you're in that boat with them, it's like, what does he mean he's going to be raised from the dead? I mean, not even thinking, you mean you think he's going to die? No, he's not going to die. What does it mean raised from the dead? I don't know. And they're trying to figure, because they're, they're thinking he's just going to just keep marching right on into the, into the kingdom. And then for him to die, it's like, well, he doesn't mean die, die, because he can't die, because he's got to become the king. So what does rise from the dead mean? And so he, that's all there. They just can't put, they just can't wrap their mind around. They just can't let those thoughts in their mind, which is challenging to me because, you know, we try to read the scriptures, but we've got so much historical information of all this all taking place. So it's easy for, ah, well, what were they thinking? Well, we got to do is flip over to Revelation and read Revelation or read some of Daniel's prophecies. And we're like all tied up in Nazi. I have no idea what to say. And it's like, eventually one day it's going to be like, oh, (laughs) says it right there. It says exactly right here. It's like, 
well, I didn't think it really meant that. I thought it meant like something else. I, you know, it meant he's going to rise from the dead. It's like, so he's going to die. Yeah. Okay. And, and now it makes sense to us, but you can understand why these guys were like struggling with it. Um, okay, uh, had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Verse 11, and they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Now that's right out of Malachi. That before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, Elijah's going to come. And also Moses the, is going to have a revival of the, of the Torah. Verse 13, or 12, Jesus replied, to be sure, now this makes it confusing also. Because Malachi says before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, Elijah's going to come. But Jesus is going to say this. Meaning we're still waiting for Elijah to come. But Jesus says this, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and, and, and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about him. So there's three things. To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. And that's going to have to be, apparently, in the future. Then he says, but I've got a question for you. Why, then, is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? Because they haven't even considered that. Because he's the Messiah. He's just going to make everybody listen. He says, but it says that he's going to suffer. The Messiah that you recognize is going to suffer and be rejected. What does that mean? Now, Jesus knows the answer, but they're like, because the, the, the answer to that is what he means, rise from the dead, because he knows they're talking about, what does he mean, rise from the dead? Well, let me ask you this. What does it mean that the scripture says he must suffer and be rejected? Could it mean he's going to die? It's like, it's like they, can't, they couldn't go there on their own. And then he says, but I tell you the truth, Elijah has come. So there's the idea that he is going to come and restore all things. But Elijah has already come. And they did have done to him everything that they wished, just as it was written about him. And that would be John the Baptist, which wasn't Elijah, because it was John the Baptist. But even Gabriel, when he talked to Zachariah's father, says he'll go forth, forward in the spirit of Elijah. And Jesus, in another place, identifies John the Baptist with Elijah. So John the Baptist was the coming of Elijah, or the spirit of Elijah, or one like Elijah, that made way for the coming of the day of the Lord, which was Jesus' first coming. But Elijah is going to come again in another way to restore all things before the second coming. And thus, he was on the mountain of transfiguration with Moses, because both of them are together in Malachi. So a lot's taking place right there. We'll spend more time talking about that. But you see right here how things have taken a turn here in chapter 8, as he, after he leaves the Pharisees and goes up here to Caesarea Philippi, because he's on, it's, it's, the teaching phase, in a sense, is over. It's now, I'm going to fulfill my mission. He had a mission to go and, and reveal himself, to teach the people, but now his mission is to go to the cross, and the disciples are going to have to watch and, and, and stay with it without fully understanding what's really taking place. And that's one of the, again, the, the interesting things of the scriptures is all the way through our leaders our apostles are totally clueless and and lost through the whole 
And you know how the book of Mark ends. And they, they come to the tomb and they all went away afraid. It's like, and we'll talk about that too. It's like the book of Mark ends in confusion. That's why there's an ending added to it. Some say it's genuine. Some say it was added later because it's not in the earliest manuscripts. The book of Mark ends with that very thing. What do you think? Now you've got to decide. Okay, here let's go back to our text for tonight. Uh, Mark chapter 8. Um, and I'm going to now read right here in our notes. And I, I hope you find this interesting. Uh, and first of all, we're in chapter 8, verses 10 through 13. This is, no doubt, combative. When Jesus lands on the shore on the northwest side at Delmunitha, uh, I say the, the word right, Delmunutha, when he lands at that little port, it's probably a, a, a port, a fishing port, uh, and I think I got it written down right here. Point one, Delmunutha, Del how would you say it? Delmunutha? Delmanatha. Is that what you would say? That's what I would say. Okay. So you got the, the, the syllable del man utha. Okay, del man utha. Uh, it's only mentioned here, and even in all of the ancient writings. It's assumed to be on the northwest side of Galilee near uh, Megaden or Megadella. Most likely a fishing port outside the city. So it's, it's a definite place. But it's not the city or the village. It's outside the village. It's the it's a fishing port outside the city, just north of Tiberias. So again, like I said, you can, it'd be right. This is Tiberias. We're looking right here. We're looking at Bethsaida right there, and right up here is Capernaum, and this would be Tiberias. So Del 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 Manutha, that what you said? It would be right about here, and they sailed across right there. That'd be it's in that area for sure. Um. In 1971, an ancient anchorage was found at this very location. So they have found a place that could be there. It's also behind a wall. In, in the Talmud and Josephus writings, it talks about a, a wall being there, that, that, like a retaining wall, and then the port would be right here. So they may have actually found the place. So they probably just sailed across at a seaport, got off, and there's the Pharisees waiting for them. Uh, and here's the text in the English Standard Version, what we're going to be looking at here in these next few moments. And he, this is chapter 8, verses 10 through 13 of Mark. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Belmanutha on the other side. The Pharisees, now this is confrontational, and we'll, I'll explain it. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And that all that is, you pile that up, that is directly confrontational. They're not saying, okay, we really want to follow you. I've just got a few questions before we sign the contract. Uh, can you clarify a few things? They're not coming with an open heart. They're coming to him. They came to argue with him. And they're seeking, demanding, in a sense of trying to take control of him in the situation, demanding a sign from heaven. And that from heaven could just as well be a sign from God, meaning you think you're with God, we're with God, we want our God to do something for you, to show us. And it's like, do something, have him, heaven, do something, and to test him. Now that is not dokimazo, the word for test, uh, where your hearts are being tested, these trials are testing, you testing for approval. You th say you've got faith, you're going to go through this test, and you're going to show through your actions that you do have faith, you're going to be dokimazo, tested, and you're going to come out on the other side approved. You pass the test. It's, 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 it's like 
you know, like a semester quiz, a semester test. It's like we've covered the material, you've studied, now we're going to test to give you your certification, or you're going to be approved. That's not the word. It's not, it's not dokimazo. It is a word to test. We're going to put a stumbling block in front of you, something you cannot do or answer, and then we're going to ask you to jump that hurdle, and you won't be able to, and you're going to fall on your face, and we're going to prove to you you're not who you say you are. It's a test to prove you can't do it. So that, that's that word right there. And he sighed deeply, and we'll look at that right there, sighed deeply in his spirit and says, why does this generation seek a sign? Now, what what is a sign? Truly, here's his oath, I say to you, in the English, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, just like they came and began to argue, he leaves them. They came to confront he just leaves them to their own disaster. Again, like I said, it's Zechariah. The, the sheep rejected him, and he's like, then you're on your own. If you're going to die, you're going to die. You're going to be destroyed. You'll end up eating each other's flesh and leaves them. Got into the boat again and went to the other side. So again, the, the very fact he got into the boat again means they landed, got out of the boat, has the confrontation, gets back in the boat and goes away. I mean, I don't even think that you know some of the disciples were probably still in the boat i mean that's my it doesn't make that clear okay point two chapter eight verse 11 is clearly a verse describing an attack by the pharisees i've got these words in boxes in the greek and you can see the greek there akai or and then the word went out and it is a translation went out the pharisees and began to dispute with him seeking from him a sign from heaven testing him so right here went out can include the phrase right there and went out that can include many things it's a simple word they go out you can go out of the house but it also can include going out in military formation they went out in potentially they went out with a purpose with a plan in mill in in formation everyone's in the right place the leaders are standing here the right person's asking the question the others are standing in the back nodding they went out in formation to meet him uh dispute is the word uh suits eteo it means to examine together it means to dispute it's used by mark in those verses one two three four five six verses and it's used with the pharisees coming and disputing arguing with him again uh it can mean to examine together, but again, the idea here is aggressive. Uh, they're seeking uh, a sign uh, to seek. Uh, I got that on the wrong place. To seek, translated as seek, search for, desire, require, or demand. I've got that in the wrong line there. Uh, but they're coming out when it says seeking. It can also have the, the overplay of coming out demanding. We want you to do this. We want you to jump through our hoops. You think you're the Messiah. We don't think you are. Jump through our hoops. And you can't jump through our hoops. And we're going to prove you're not the Messiah. So do a sign. And now that you won't do a sign, you proved our point. And he's like, I'm not even going to play this game. And his, his reaction is not that, well, I'm not going to do it. Well, see, you can't do it. His reaction is, in a sense, so far beyond it. It's like, the very fact you're asking me for this means you are too far, too far gone. It, this is over. And they may not even understood what took place, although he's going to give them several clues. Uh, I, I, the last line in D, 
Uh, it is a word used by Mark several times by those who seek to gain control. Now, when it talks about a sign, I got that in the wrong, I've got that in the wrong, put that in the wrong line there. Uh, a sign is not the word, and do I not have that written down here? Somewhere, oh yeah, point D at the bottom of the page, point 3D. The sign is not merely a miracle. The word for miracle in, the, in Mark and the New Testament is dunamis, power. A miracle is a, a, a work of, of power. A sign is going to be different. It's, it's something uh, most likely we're asking, wanting God to do something to confirm uh, what Jesus is saying or more likely what they're demanding. Uh, we'll talk about signs here in just a moment. Uh, the next one, point E, the word testing, perazzo, again, it's not dokimazzo, perimazzo, it means to make proof of, to attempt, to test, to tempt. It is used by Satan in Mar- Mar- or Matthew, but also in, Mar- in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 1, verse 13, when Satan came to tempt Jesus or test Jesus, they're doing the same thing. Satan came and tested Jesus. These people, the Pharisees, are coming just like Satan to test Jesus. Satan didn't come to inquire and try and, you know, answer some questions. He came to destroy. He came to trick. He came to tempt him to do something that's going to cause him to stumble. These Pharisees are using this. It's the same word. They're coming, not with the ability of Satan in the sense, but they are coming to put something in Jesus' way that if he tries to accomplish it, he's going to stumble and fail. Both Satan and the Pharisees came to Jesus not to test him for approval, but to test him to make him fail so they didn't have to respond to him. This is not a true test used to determine the value, but an attempt to cause someone to stumble by putting an obstacle in their path. Mark uses it three more times of the Pharisees in chapter 8, verse 11, chapter 10, verse 2, and chapter 12, verse 15. So the Pharisees are going to be on the same path. Uh, A sign from heaven. They're asking for a sign from heaven. Uh, And this again, when we talk about signs... uh, one, uh, it's, it's from heaven, meaning they're going to want here, they want God to confirm. But it's going to be, they're going to be in control. They're, I'll just write in control. It's not so much that they're wanting God to actually show them, you know, like putting out, like Gideon put out a fleece. He's actually wanting some kind of confirmation. Mary, ask. Uh, when the angel tells her, you'll conceive, and, and how will I know? How will I know this? The angel doesn't say, you shouldn't ask for a sign. The angel says, your, your, uh, your cousin Elizabeth is already, is it six months along? Go, go visit her, and she's going she's gonna to have a baby and in her elderly years. So she goes, Mary goes down to see the sign, and she walks in, and there's Elizabeth pregnant. It's like, that was the sign. It's like, now I know. The angel says, this is what's going to happen. H- how do I know? This is really strange. I, I'm not married. I'm young. You're an angel. Uh, this whole this child how 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 will i know well okay a sign elizabeth the shepherds the same thing uh they're they're in born in bethlehem and a sign is given to you born in in in, we find them laying in a manger and they go through they find it laying in a manger like this is this is this is the right one so signs are positive even uh the five thousand having food multiplied it was a sign they're supposed to see this it's like uh, you know they, they in a sense these people have already been given a sign Feeding of the 5,000 was a sign to the Jews. And theirs was like, whoa, he just did like what Moses did, but Moses didn't do it. God did it. I mean, go back to the 5,000. You know, 
Jesus multiplied the bread. Moses never multiplied bread. Moses was the leader who then God made manna provide for him in the wilderness for his people. But Moses didn't say, I am now going to part the manna. Moses just gave him some rules. There's a manna. Now you got to eat, eat it today. You can't save it for tomorrow. He just kind of oversaw it. Jesus, so it was God who made the manna in the wilderness. Well, who made the bread for the 5,000? The same one who made the manna, God. So that was a sign. You want a sign from heaven? I'm not Moses saying, look, manna's going to appear. Here, bring it to me, and I'll just start giving it out to you. So there was your sign. And the sign, in many cases, a sign is given for the people to say, what, what does this mean? And when you ask the question, what does this mean? You're actually like, like the Pharisees should have been. What does this mean? Are, could you be the Messiah? And he said, well, consider. And he, could, it's like, and he could appeal to their hearts that are open and learning. But no, they just came, remember, he got mad at them, the people, because they just came back the next day. They wanted more food. He says, no, he says, they says, Moses gave us food. He says, Moses didn't give you food. God gave you food. Who gave you food yesterday? Me. Make the connection. Well, can we have more food? The food you need is me. The, you need me, the bread of life. They're like, well, can we at least have breakfast? Okay, let me say this. Way. This, way we this is John chapter 6. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. It's like, it says, many went away at that time. It's like, that's weird. And so then it's like they, didn't, they couldn't understand the sign, and so that ended up failing. So a sign, and again, I've said it before, uh, a sign for the Jews on the day of Pentecost was the speaking in tongues. When they heard everyone speaking, again, you can go back and read that and put it together and try to understand what it's saying, but it, the impression is that they each heard them speaking their own language wasn't like I said before, it wasn't like this guy was speaking Greek, this guy was speaking Latin, this guy was speaking, you know, some e Egyptian or Chaldean. Uh, it's like, they're all speaking, you know, Egyptian. It's like, no, they're all speaking Chaldean. It's like, no, these guys are all speaking Latin. It's like, and they're speaking in the dialect. Yeah, they're speaking Latin just like my neighborhood. No, they're speaking Latin like my neighborhood. It was even the dialect was, so it wasn't that, there are different pockets of the apostles speaking different languages. It was that everyone was hearing it in their own language. And there's like, what does this mean? And that's what they say. It says, what does this mean? Peter raises a voice and says, okay, these guys are not drunk. What's happening here? And then Peter began to explain the sign of tongues. So signs, they're asking for a sign for God to confirm. Uh, uh, they're asking for a sign to put themselves in control. We want you to do this sign, a sign from heaven. Um, interesting, some verses here I want to point out as we talk about this. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22 through 23. And this is, this is a, 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 we could spend some time on this. Paul tells the Corinthians, who were themselves struggling with New Testament revelation, the, the Corinthians were not Jews, they were Greeks, Gentiles. And they were struggling with the idea that the God that they worshiped, the God that saved them, you know, died on a cross. I mean, the Romans, like, killed him. I mean, you go through all of Greek mythology, I mean, your heroes are going to be like the overcomers. They're not the ones that get, like, nailed to a cross. Maybe if they get arrogant or something, or that something goes wrong, the, the story goes. But that's not the guy you're looking for. 
So now the Christians come and they, or the, the, Paul comes to the Corinthians and presents Christ crucified. And they accept it. They get saved. They start growing. But Greek philosophy starts to chip away and they start kind of tweaking it. It's like, yeah, we needed something a little bit better than just a dead God who came back from the dead that we can't see. And they began to convert their church into Greek, myth- not Greek mythology, but Greek philosophy. And they began to explain, and then you see 1 Corinthians 15, they'd explained away the resurrection. Because we don't need a physical resurrection. We are now, in a sense, spiritually already there. And we're already mature. We're already complete. And you can see all the problems they ran into. But Paul comes back and says, you're rejecting the very gospel because you're looking for this wisdom. Well, here, here's what he writes at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. He says, For the Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. So culturally, the reason the Jews are going to miss the Messiah that we're talking about right here, he comes, and he's going to go right up and tell the disciples, the Son of Man is going to have to suffer many things. We, we're heading to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified. Okay. The, the, the Pharisees are looking for a sign. Well, how about the m- mission of the Messiah? No, we want a sign. Can't you just read the scriptures and follow the mission? No, we need a sign. Well, the Greeks, here's the mission. He went to the cross, was crucified, resurrected, and by faith in Christ, you can join him, be seated with Christ in the heavenly place, and receive the new birth and the spirit, and you can begin to grow and produce the first fruits, the righteousness. Yeah, first fruits of righteousness. We need something a little more substantial, something that can stand up like in a university. We need some wisdom. We need to be able to talk to these philosophers. So the Greeks seek wisdom. The Jews want a sign. The Greeks want some wisdom. They can dialogue you know, and, and, and prove uh, and watch this. Here's what Paul says then. The, the, he says, For the Jews demand signs, the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach, in other words, we're not going to give you either one. We're not going to give you a sign, and we're not going to give you wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And that's, he says, that's why you're having so much trouble. You accepted it, you got into it. Now people are starting to ask you questions. It's like, well, yeah, and you start tweaking it so it matches their wisdom, and you've lost Christ. And the Jews, you want a sign. Well, y'all, you're going to get us a crucified Messiah. It's like, well, that's not a very good sign. And he says that's, the, and so he sums it all up like that. Okay, so that's just an interesting verse, and of course we can't teach First Corinthians, although I dabble with it. Point B a prophet with a sign, but a false message was still considered a false prophet according to Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. Now, in Deuteronomy 13, Moses says, if someone comes to you, if a prophet comes to you and does a miraculous sign, say he parts the Red Sea or he produces manna, and his message is, now, let us go follow these other gods. I know this is what your God told you to do. I know this is what you think, but we're going to go a different direction. He says, even if he, whatever he does, you know, whatever sign he gives you, if his message doesn't match my message, he's a false prophet. In other words, signs prove nothing. Moses makes it very clear. The sign means, look, but he called fire out of heaven. 
Right, but he denied Christ. Yeah, but he called fire. Who can do that but God? He's denying the message. Uh, And so that's Deuteronomy 13. Now, again, we know that's going to happen. There's going to be the false prophet is going to even call fire out of heaven, amazing the inhabitants of the world, but he's denying truth. And so when it comes down sign or truth, what do you follow? You follow the truth. And here, you know, they want a sign. Jesus has been giving them signs. He's been giving them plenty of signs, but he's been giving them truth and they've got the scriptures and they won't even read the scriptures. They want a sign and all they've got to do is, in their case, look at the scriptures, but they're going to reject it. And then uh, Deuteronomy eighteen twenty two, right here, Moses writes, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, and that's Yahweh, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So if he says, well, look, here's what's going to happen and nothing happens, don't worry about him. Okay, page two, chapter eight, verse 12. And here's Jesus' response. I hope I can get through this. I've got two things in boxes and one thing underlined in the Greek box there. And having sighed deeply, you see that word right there, having sighed deeply in the Spirit. So it wasn't just his, 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 his breath. It was his Spirit. His person inside was manifesting an expression in, in, in the physical having sighed deeply in the spirit of him, he says, why the generation this seeks a sign? So that's his question. Why does this generation seek a sign? Okay, why would this generation, it's a rhetorical question, why would this generation seek a sign? And the answer is there's only one reason. They're they're wicked. They're an adulterous generation. They're looking for something other than the truth. Why would this generation seek a sign? Hmm. Could it be you don't like the truth that's staring you in the face? Could it be you want a different answer? Could it be you want a false prophet? And he doesn't say that. He just says, why would this generation want a sign? It's rhetorical. It's not like, huh, what could the answer be? The answer is, you're losers. And then here he says, now he takes an oath. Truly I say to you, in the Greek it says that, truly I say to you, and here it is right out of the Greek. If there will be given it to the generation this a sign. Here's what it says. If there will be given to the generation this a sign. And that's all it says. And so now we've got to go into some of these things. First of all, the sigh. Having sighed deeply in the spirit also means groaning in his spirit. The word sigh or groan is right there. I could try to pronounce it. Anastanoxus. And it is used 30 times in all of Greek literature. Okay, hear that? All of Greek literature. Not in the Bible. It's used a couple times in the Bible. It's used 30 times in all of Greek literature. And what it means is this. It is not an expression of anger or indignation. When it says he sighed deeply in the spirit, that word does not mean have anything to do with anger or indignation. In Greek literature, it is an expression of dismay and despair. Not in the Bible, but in all of Greek literature. When this word is used, and they sighed deeply, or they groaned, it's a sign of despair and indignation. Uh, Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. An expression of dismay and despair. It is used in the Greek of a person who is pushed to their limit 
of faithfulness. In other words, someone that's been pushed so far, I cannot go any further with you. I've been as faithful to you as I can be. I, I can't go any further. I'm, I'm done. I'm not going any further. It's like you have violated me so far, so many times. I'm not angry, but I, I'm, this, this is over. This is stinking over. That's what that word means. So he groaned, and he's gone so far. Now, what's scary about this, this is the same emotion the Lord expressed to the wilderness generation. The reference to this generation recalls the generation of Noah or the wilderness generation. And uh, look at point three, uh, B3. A similar oath is fo- formulated in Psalm ninety-five, eleven. So I swore on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. In other words, this is the same thing. And I got the whole verse or the Psalm 95, 10, 11 written out there. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation, God says in Psalms. And I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. So I swore on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So there is a parallel verse. I mean, it's, it's ideally the same thing. God has gone as far as for 40 years I've borne with you in this wilderness. I will go no further. You're not going into, you're not going into the promised land. Again, uh, that's that 40 years they never came around. Now again, the, the second generation goes in. Now, the end of the verse. Truly I say to you, And then, if there will be given to this generation this a sign, is I got two authors here I'm going to quote from. It's a Semitic construction. This is a guy named Edwards in the Pillar New Testament commentary on Mark. A Semitic construction implying categorical denial, meaning something like, if a sign shall be given, if a sign shall be given to this generation, may I die. In other words, that's what he says. Truly, I say, now again, it doesn't capture it into the English. It's part of the Semitic idea there. But it's, it's, it's a vow. If a sign, if you end up getting a sign, I would rather die. So he groans, I'm not, I can't go any further. If this generation gets a sign, I would rather die than go any further with you. That is one of the commentators. Strauss, in the Zondervan exegetical commentary for mark says and this is right i'm just quoting right what he writes what follows is a semitic oath formula the oath is commonly translated in english versions as something like quote no sign will be given to this generation that's how it's typically translated but a literal rendering of the greek is if a sign will be given to this generation in other words it's putting out like a stipulate if if a sign will be given to this generation, but a, uh, but a literal rending of the Greek, if a sign will be given to this generation, this is the proteus, or the if part, if of a conditional sense. When we talk about the four conditions of Greek, this would be part of the, part of the if of the Greek, the condition. If a sign will be given to this generation, the, the apodosis, or the counter side of the if. If you get a sign, then this is what's going to happen. And it's, it's, it's not, it's not communicated, it's just right there. If, it's, it's in the Greek, in that condition, if a sign is given to this generation, 
And what it means is, the if, oh, oh, then there's something missing. And that here, right here, may, this guy writes, the oath is self-imprecatory and means something like, may God judge me severely if a sign will be given to this generation. Hence the idiomatic translation, no sign will be given to this generation. It just kind of cuts away. I mean, no sign will be given to this generation. But actually, it's, it's an oath. It's a vow. If a sign is given to this generation, I'd rather die. I, I, it, I'd rather be cursed. It's, in other words, I've gone so far, if a sign is given to this generation, it, it, no. And it's, it's quite, quite emotional if you look at it. Chapter 8, verse 13.5. Jesus leaves them here in Galilee like he will leave them in the temple in Mark 13, 1 through 2. And it says, and he, and he, this is from Mark 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be one there will not let left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So right here, you've got a very similar situation where Jesus has been arguing with the leaders and he leaves the temple for the last time. He's walking out of the temple for the last time. I, I leave this to you. And he walks out. And on his way out, the disciples are like, like in our story, they're gonna be like, well, why do we forget the bread? They're like, wow, is this an impressive sight of what these buildings are just... Jesus says, did you miss what just happened? I'm leaving the temple for the last time. Not one of these stones is going to be left upon another because of me walking out today. What? What are you talking about? It's like, and so he has this confrontation with the Pharisees. He says, I'd rather die than give you a sign. And just, I I can't go any further with you guys. Let's go. Gets in the boat and he goes, you guys, you're going to say, we'll talk about this he says, look out for the yeast of the Pharisees and, and of Herod. They go, oh, it's the bread. We forgot the bread. It's like, no. Same thing. He argues with the Pharisees on Mark 3, 12 and 13. He's arguing with the leaders and then walks out. We're out. And on, on his way out of the temple, they go, these stones are pretty cool. Isn't this an amazing thing that Herod's done? It's like, you guys, there's not going to be one stone left upon another. This is all coming down. They're like, Wow, that sure switched directions fast. It's like, no! I, from, from Caesarea Philip, I'm coming here to be crucified. And the whole time they're like, well, we should have brought more bread. Aren't these stones cool? It's like, what does he mean he's going to die? Or right for this? It's like, it's like, oh my gosh! It's like, and so you can feel the frustration. But yet, the guy who's writing this is Mark, who learned it from Peter, who's one of the guys stumbling through this whole story, who writes First and Second Peter, uh, who we're trying to study and become more like. So... Again, the idea is like, there's hope for us. I mean, it's like the very fact that we're here struggling and stumbling through this means we're heading in the right direction. Thank God for the spirit that he's working in our lives and that we're seated with Christ in heavenly places because if it was just, if it's, you know, the Jews want a sign, okay, signs are cool, but you know what I want? I want wisdom. I want, I want to, not, not wisdom like James. I'm t- I want to know the intellectual ins and outs of all these words and all these arguments. I want all this like, okay, yeah, but we're talking about Christ crucified. It's like, okay, but can we make that sound a little more, little more appealing to the universities or whatever? It's like, no, Galen, you're struggling, and the Spirit's going to take you from here 
to where God's taking you. So just stay with the truth. So again, there's hope. I'll pray and we're done. Father, we do thank you for the chance to look into these things. We ask that we would be faithful, that you would not become exasperated with us, but we would continue to look into your word, that you continue to show us grace and allow your spirit to manifest those first fruits of righteousness in our own lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for your time.